Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 10 of Music is Not a Genre. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Don't forget, you can support this podcast and my music and everything I do at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre or at anchor.fm slash musicisnotagenre. I would love it very much if you would be a part of either of those families. My public hub is youtube.com slash nickdimatteo or youtube.com slash at musicisnotagenre which I may just convert to at this point. My website, where you get this podcast and music and voiceovers and acting and graphic design and other things, is nickdematio.com. And most important to me, please listen to and support my band, Rec, at recarea.bandcamp.com or wherever you stream fine music. Let's get to this week's topic. I am super excited do I say that every week now? I'm not even sure. I, I feel like I've said it often, and maybe that's because I'm programming this year really well. I don't know. Uh, or at least it's how it feels to me. But I am very excited about this week's podcast because it is the first of a six-part series. And this episode is titled, The Beatles Part One, Ingenious Imitators. Yes, you heard that right. I have talked about The Beatles more than once. Uh, I did an episode on John Lennon. Uh, I have talked about the Beatles throughout various podcast episodes ever since the beginning, really. But I've never actually devoted time and a full episode to talking about the Beatles. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because everyone's done it. You know, and I need to figure out well what what was my take you know take on it and and two was because I wanted to be ready for that, you know, and so my take is this first of all, here's how I'm structuring this since this is the first one. let me tell you, I'm basing it on their albums. they're gonna be six parts, like I said. The first part will not be their formation. I'm gonna talk a little bit about this here, but uh, very important point here, which is that everyone has written and talked about almost everything you could possibly want to learn. You know, I did a whole episode on the Beatles books, and I kind of talked about that. So I'm not going to go deeply into history and all the details of that if you want that. First of all, that would be hours and hours long, just for honestly, probably a year in their life, if not less than a year. If you want that, there's there's a book I can recommend, at least for starters. There are so many other books out there that you may have read already if you're a Beatles fan or watch documentaries, whatever it is. So that's not going to be this. 
That will not part one. This is going to be, like I said, uh, or if I haven't, broken up into uh, five parts of their albums. Two of which, if you're watching, you can see here, that will be this episode. And then the sixth part will be touching on and kind of uh, their solo work, but not so much individually, yes, but more so, how does it relate to their role in the Beatles, since this is a six-part Beatles series and not, um, you know, an episode on Ringo Starr. I may do individual episodes for the other three, since I did one on John Lennon uh, at some point. I probably will, but that's not what what that will be. So this first part here will be dealing with like I said, a brief touching on their formation and then getting right into the albums. And that's because I'm not coming at this from the standpoint of a historian or expert or knowing the minutiae. I'm in a Beatles cover band. If you see uh, to my, my left shoulder, geez, I had to make an L, uh, above is a, is a Hofner bass. That's the bass I use in that band. And I have worked with various musicians in that band. Our core four are awesome people, but we often run into fill-in guys whose main deal is everything has to be authentic and perfect and all of that. And that's not the kind of Beatles band we are. And that's not the kind of fan I am. So I don't get into that kind of minutia unless it's something that just popped into my head that I found of interest. I'm going to be coming at this from the standpoint of a fan and most importantly, a music creator. Kind of get into some of not not rich details of all of the songs because there's way too much here and I you know I may do that in some podcast I may break down one song but at this point it's the it's how did their music and does their music influence and impact me as a creator and again of course as a fan you know so let's just jump right into it and the first thing that I'm going to mention is this a lot of rock stars talk about, uh, and, and they may not talk about it, but when we talk about rock stars and artists, we talk about how they uh, struggled, uh, suffered in their early life, and that's what created the impetus for them to become who they became. And that could mean a poet, could mean a writer, whatever. And in this case, there's some of that, yes. You know, you had Ringo Starr being ill as a child, and and I think there was a divorce in there, and, and George, you know, had his issues, and of course, Paul and John lost their mothers, you know. So there was that, but I think it's important to stress that they came from middle-class upbringings, maybe to varying degrees, but they were middle-class people. And I've always identified with that because that's how I was brought up. Uh, I don't know what you call me or anybody in my position now. Uh, I'm sure there's still a middle class somewhere that that resembles the middle class that I grew up with, but they did not necessarily suffer, you know, monetarily. They didn't want for food and things like that, you know, and yet there was a drive in them to break out of whatever condition they were living in and away from their family and to uh, explore this music that they absolutely fell in love with, which is American rock and roll. And I'll go a little bit into their influences, which differed from some of the other bands' influences that that came with the British invasion. Uh, They formed, you know, in the mid-late 50s, 
Uh, John had his band, which he originally called the Black Jacks, found out there was another band with that name, changed it to the Quarry Men. They considered themselves, I think, skiffle in the beginning. And there were a lot of bands like that that kind of had that light shuffle beat, uh, slightly folk and rock and roll and type of thing going on there. Look up skiffle. You give me a definition. I want your comments. And then uh, when they, you know, when Paul came on and and then subsequently George, they changed the name to Johnny and the Moon Dogs. They had the name the Silver Beatles, but Beatles spelled like the bug. And then they changed it to their Silver Beatles, like Beatles and then Beatles. And there were might have been one or two others in there. They worked under the name the Beat Brothers as a backing band for Tony Sheridan, which I'll talk about a little later. Uh, so... Just like any band, they went through their changes and they went through those periods where they're trying to figure out who they were, what they were doing. And of course, like other bands, they started out doing a lot of cover music. You know that. And again, I'm not going to get into all those details. If you want to learn about this early period in their career, I suggest Mark Lewison's The Beatles All These Years, Volume 1, Tune In. I am like sick waiting for the second volume because it's probably the best book on the Beatles that I've read and I think it's partly because it only focuses on the first few years of their existence uh, but really before they were famous so I'm going even a little further here uh, you know that Stu Sutcliffe was the original bass player and he left and he died and it upset John there's not things if you don't know this then you should probably watch some other podcast or movie or read a book before you listen to this podcast or watch it because I, I'm kind of coming at this from a place of uh, to speaking to you as though you're already a fan. Or if you're not a fan, maybe my enthusiasm will convince you. Uh, Pete Best, we know, was not, the, was not the first drummer for the Beatles. He was the first drummer to stick because he was there with them for a couple of years. I sort of consider him the Chad Channing of the Beatles, if you know Nirvana. Chad Channing was the drummer before Dave Grohl, but he was not the first ever drummer. They went through a series of drummers. Beatles went through a series of drummers. And you'd ask, you know, Pete Bess in the studio, and I, you know, couldn't keep time, whatever it was. They didn't mainly didn't get along as well, and they knew Ringo from his work with Rory Storm and all these other things. And so they got together, blah, 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 and then you have Ringo, right? All that time, they were playing clubs in Britain. They, of course, had their stint in Germany, residency, you can call it, playing up to eight hours a day, I believe. And, you know, here's the thing about that. First of all, it shaped their, it tightened them. It shaped who they were as performers. That's how they had that kind of irreverent, you know, humor and all of that stuff. It it helped to develop what they appreciated and loved about music and got them to learn it so deeply that they, you know, just from listening and from playing, absorbed it enough to create it themselves, which is why I call this episode Ingenious Imitators or this or subtitle it, because their original songs were imitating the songs and the artists they loved. And then and I'll talk a little bit about that later when I get to the first album. And I think it's worth saying that they were a kick-ass live band. They don't necessarily get the credit to this day that they deserve for being an amazing live band. And I'm not talking about, oh, they did well and they rocked the house. Yeah, and I'm sure for starters, that's what they did. But they 
were an incredible live band, really. And they may have suffered from sound issues and blah, blah, blah. Nevertheless, I think it's it's not as... The, because, they, because they shifted to the studio at some point and stopped performing and all of that stuff, I think that kind of tainted their history as not being a good live band. No, sorry, untrue. So then they start recording finally. Uh, you know, they had some home recordings and little demos and things like that, but then they really started recording in the early 60s. Uh, you know, uh, Tony Sheridan, again, he, they were his backing band. He did an album, didn't play on every song, but played on several, including My Bonnie, which is on the anthology. I have a stack of Beatles CDs over there, and I thought about just putting everything out, but then I saw the books I had, and I saw the sheet music and all of this stuff, and I knew that I would not be able to fit it all in this set, or I'd have to clean, and I'm not really a fan of that. This is my office, so I kind of want to keep it this way, because I work here. It's my studio and my office. And so they, yes, you know, recorded under the Beatles uh, or the Beat Brothers, uh, depending on the song and the singer. And that was then, and and Brian Epstein and George Martin and blah blah blah. Right? Okay. So they start with, uh, you know, "Love Me Do" and and other songs. And "Love Me Do" was a slow song to begin with. And if I'm rushing through things, as though you should know it. It's because I've been living with all of this information for so long that I, I'm i not sure, honestly, what's important to, to you or, or to me other than just the world of the Beatles. And so if there's something I'm rushing through and you're like, wait, 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 wait a second, they had another version of Love Me Do and you're not as immersed in their alternate takes and things like that, then just comment. Let me know. And I can flesh that out for you in a comment or something like that or in a future episode. So then I, I think it, it is important to note that one of the things that attracted George Martin uh, to the Beatles was that they were writing their own songs. They didn't, they didn't necessarily, he didn't necessarily think that the songs were great at the time, but he saw that they had potential. And as importantly, he saw that they were an amazingly dynamic group of people and live band. And I'll jump to that when we get to the first album. They also wrote songs that they did record, but then more often than not, uh, for those handful of songs, gave them to other performers who had bigger hits. There's a song, How Do You Do It?, which... I, I don't know if that's ever been anybody's favorite Beatles song. Jerry and the Pacemakers had a big hit. Uh, Ringo sang I Want to Be Your Man on one of these albums. And the Stones had their first kind of hit on that. And that, to me, brings up an important point, which is I did an episode on rivalry, rivalries and how bullshit they are, most of them almost all of them, frankly, in the music world. And that absolutely includes the Beatles and the Stones. They never had a rivalry. Uh, Jeez, yeah, it's a rainy day. I'm talking like it's a rainy day. And in fact, we're friends to some degree. And the Beatles being a year or two older and coming out sooner helped the Stones, wanted to help them, and gave them that song, I Want to Be Your Man, and helped them in other ways, too. You know, there was no competition. And that, in in fact, they, I don't think they were 
any less rebellious than the Stones. The Stones had that kind of bad boy image because of the way they performed, because they focused mostly on the blues and and had a down and dirty sound, if you want to call it that, for the time anyway. And the Beatles, you know, were asked to uh, wear suits and shift it to that degree. But if you know anything about their live game and or any of the recordings you've heard, you know that they were insouciant and they... Uh, joked around all the time. If you've ever heard any press conferences, you know, you know, what do you call that haircut? Uh, uh, ah, damn, I don't know. George made up a name. And uh, those kind of things, not to mention their personal lives, and they did all the things that, you know, musicians have done since time immemorial, I, I would think. So let's just lay that to rest. You know, persona and image is different from the real story. But what is different is that the Stiss, the Stones, and I'm just going to mention them in this first episode because there's the diversion there, um, and that is they had that kind of blues influence. Were pretty much just a blues band, and for the first couple of albums, I mean, they might have they have one, you know, original, and so of course they grew into that, partly inspired by the Beatles and just kind of getting to know themselves. But that was really where their bread and butter was, was that blues sound and the blues rock sound. The Beatles had some blues, sure, but that was not their main thing. They were influenced by uh, vocal groups like the Everly Brothers, absolutely loved them, and early rock and roll like um, Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly and, of course, Elvis. And they, you know, pop music, uh, Motown and R&B music, the Miracles, Girl groups, even uh, little uh, little Richard. Girl groups, even the Shirelles and the Marvelettes, and and they covered you know so many of these people's songs. They were also inspired by uh, songwriting teams, like classic songwriting pairs, the Great American Songbook, and all of that stuff from as far back as you know Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein, but also Goffin and King and the Brill Building era. They em- they emulated that in their deciding to you know label every song that they wrote whether it was together or alone as Lennon McCartney uh, which was originally McCartney Lennon I read I think Lennon McCartney works better but we're used to that and so those influences if you really listen to the music you can hear how that infused their music and how disparate all these influences are I think is one reason why they created the music they did that was so unique and had these elements that other bands at the time didn't have and that they were able to dig so deep and go so wide in their songwriting abilities because they weren't trying to imitate just one style of music. They weren't even necessarily trying to sound exactly like any of those styles of music. It it all became kind of a blender which has always been my favorite thing with artists, and I've talked about that before. It's the way I make music. I may often do a song that is intentionally meant to sound like one style or one you know type of song or one artist, sort of. But mostly, I like to blend influences, and that's, I think, how an artist gets their identity. You know, you listen to so many other artists that came after the Beatles and how they had little tinges of the Beatles, whether it was Black Sabbath, yes, um, David Bowie or Chicago or God knows how many others. Um, what's the name of that? Uh, Klaatu, you know, who people thought were the Beatles in secret. 
they all had Beatles influences, but they had other influences too, and they mixed them together and created what they created. Even Elton John and Billy Joel had some Beatles influences, right? So let's get to, to let's get to the albums. I have no idea what time it is. I'm a little clocky clock there because I can't see that far. But I don't want this to drag out to two hours. Uh, I don't. I don't know how long it's going to be. I'm. I don't. Uh, I don't like to edit. I like to do this in one take. One take wonder, right? So, this first episode, other than the you know big preamble that I just finished, is about their first two albums, and I put them together because I think they are of a piece. They represent their live. Uh, iteration, what they were doing out in the clubs, Uh, again, mostly covers, and there are a ton of covers on each of these albums, but when you compare the amount of originals they had on Please Please Me In with the Beatles to other bands of that time, they absolutely blow them away, and the fact that the majority of those songs are just super strong right from the get-go just shows you that they... Hey, had been doing it for a while by then, and they put their first album out, Please Please Me, here. I'll do this. Boom. It's not a real album. What is this thing? It's a CD. It's the picture that you see in the streaming services. Let me open it up for you. This was from that big box set, the black box set that's shaped like a like a rectangle or Lego and has all of their albums uh, great shot, by the way, which I think they reused again on the blue or red album. I forget in the seventies, um, with them going to that same hotel and taking another shot when they kind of let their hair out, and, you know, literally, and all of that. The "Please Please Me" was meant to be recorded at the Cavern Club, but the acoustics were just too terrible. So George Martin decided, well, let's try to emulate that live feel in the studio, which kind of most people were doing anyway because they were working on a two-track. I believe this was done with a two-track. And so they recorded all these as a full band. It's not that they didn't do changes or whatever, but that's how this first album... And honestly, so many bands' first albums have been recorded that way up until the last maybe 20 years when people are recording at home and can take as long as they want. Uh, and it did, I think, capture their live essence. There are six covers out of 14 songs. 14 songs on an LP, especially back then where time was was limited, means they were pretty damn short songs. No song is over three minutes. Uh, again, yeah, the title track, Please Please Me, was originally recorded slower, and I believe it had kind of a triple beat. Love Me Do was... was uh, I don't remember. Love Me Do was different, but yes... Um, and P.S. I Love You, 1962. All of those are recorded in 1962 uh, and eventually modified for the 1963 album. Another good point here is that from the very beginning, there's at least one song on every album where all of the members are singing lead. Uh, I'd like you to name another band that does that. And what I'm saying is, not a band like Chicago. I go to them because I know them where they had three lead singers or any band that you can name that had two lead singers, but the other members didn't sing lead. I mean, every member of the band sang lead. And of course, we know who the main leads were nevertheless, right? And and did it strongly to varying degrees. I read uh, something online recently. Someone asked, what are the best album openers 
of any album, not just the Beatles. And this one was listed. I saw her standing there. And I honestly think is one of the best all-time album openers and maybe the best career opener. The first song on the first album. No, it wasn't the first single, the first thing they released, but the first song on the first album. My God, right? And the other thing about this album is because I didn't know it as well. When I was growing up, my dad had all the American uh, issues of this album. And I'm using the UK issues because to me, they're, uh, I don't know, they're, they're where they started. And eventually, it was, they were pretty much the same down the line anyway. But in the beginning, I, I had Meet the Beatles, or my dad had LPs of all of their albums. And he had Meet the Beatles instead of Please Please Me or With the Beatles, you know. And they had different tracks on there. Some singles that were not on their UK albums ended up on the American albums, etc., etc. But because I didn't know that era as well, and I also didn't gravitate to it as, as much, and I'll talk more about that in subsequent ep- episodes of this series of where my original first favorite uh, era was of the Beatles, etc. This was never a favorite era, but I have come to appreciate and understand it and revere it more as I've gotten older. But I remember thinking uh, when I was younger and even up till recently in some of these songs, I couldn't tell which songs were covers and which were originals because I didn't know them that well. So perfect example. Yes, I knew I saw her standing there was a cover. One of my favorites in the album. Misery uh, is not a cover. I wasn't sure because it's followed by Anna, Go to Him, which is a cover. And I and it, to me, their originals were, were as strong as the hits that they were covering at the time, or most of their originals were at the time. So it's cool to me to think that it's something I've always, you know, strove for, which is if I put one of my songs, one of Rex's songs up against a similar song and you don't know either one, can you tell that one, one's a cover, wasn't, you know, one's my song, one's some famous artist song, whatever it is, that's, that's what you want. And that's what they did from the very beginning, you know, then Chains. So the first three I think Misery and Anna are are songs that most people don't know that well. I have to say I have grown to really love them. And I think it's partly because they're a little different from the things that you've heard. And they were already exploring different ways to uh, write and record, specifically to write. Chains, the fourth, uh, Goffin and King. Of course, they're going to do a Goffin and King song because they revered them. Boys. A Shirelle's song, right from the beginning, they covered a girl group song and just like kept the words, right? You know, and, and that was them kind of revering girl groups and Motown and, and American music and messing with people's heads. I think they were messing with people's heads. Ask Me Why, not a cover. I thought for a while it was a cover. Please Please Me, yes, one of my favorites. Now, partly because I enjoy performing it so much, and I'm always taking the high harmonies in the cover band that I do, Love Me Do, is this on the second side. P.S. I Love You, I always thought that was a cover. I think that was the main one that I was like, that's a cover, of course it is. Not a cover. And and you may be like, duh, of course it's not, but just think of being a child and not knowing the difference, or even being a young adult, for God's sake, and having listened to these and making assumptions. That's why it's so great to, to you know, the more you, you grow, the more you learn. 
Baby It's You, another Shirelle song. I I enjoy that. Uh, Do You Want to Know a Secret is another favorite off of this. It shows that, you know, George can sing. Um, A Taste of Honey was a Broadway song. Not not the last Broadway song that they would uh, cover. And yes, Paul sang them. There's a Place is such a great song. If you don't know it, look it up. Not a big hit. I don't know if it was a hit at all. Look it up. It's got so much energy, and I love those harmonies. And then, of course, the closer, Twist and Shout. This was a cover of a song done first by the Top Notes, which was a so-so version. Good song, so-so version. And then by the Isley Brothers, a very, very good version. And for the type of music it was, uh, honestly, an amazing and a big hit for them. They were done in 1961 and 1962. And, you know, some of us might believe, because I once believed this, that the songs they were covering were several years old and they they grew up with them, etc. They were picking songs practically right off the charts. They probably were playing songs off the charts because they were doing these songs live prior to this 1963 album. And that's actually a common thing in music in general, but especially in that era where you would find more than one version of a, of a song, partly because it was a brill building era where someone else wrote the songs and somebody else performed the songs, you know, but also because the, the record companies always had that kind of short-sighted mentality, which is if something's a hit, it's going to be a hit. The great thing about the Beatles is they chose these songs. They didn't have the songs chosen for them. They wanted to do these covers. They had been doing these covers. They were strong on them because of their live game. Um, yeah. So Meet the Beatles was the first uh, U.S. and the Beatles' second album, uh, which I honestly don't even remember. Um, and like I said, my dad had all the LPs, and that's why I know those. So this one, right? Iconic photo done by Robert Freeman, inspired by Astrid Kircher. This was done in, I believe, a hotel hallway. And it was not, uh, you know retouched that that uh shadow on their faces was the real shadow in the hallway which i thought was cool so this is with the beatles this is 1963 the beginning of 1963 was please please me the end of 1963 was with the beatles another 14 songs another album with six covers and eight originals another instance of them being ingenious imitators and they really are the epitome, in many ways, of what I constantly say about doing cover songs, which is that if you're going to cover a song, make it your own. Don't try to do a note-for-note version of the original. Add your personality, add your sound to it. I'm going to be sharing covers later on in this uh, series of Beatles songs that I've done, ones that you haven't heard yet, or maybe you have, but not on this uh, podcast. And you'll see how they don't sound like the original. You know, you find the essence of the original, what makes it such a great song. Include that somehow in how you do it, but make it your own. That's why, you know, Love Weezer, they're, they're, you know, they can be infuriating sometimes. They can be inspiring other times. I've been an off and on fan of theirs since the early mid 90s. But that album they did that was a covers album 
the songs where they took liberties were way better than the songs where they tried to do note for note. And I know that was sort of like when Vince Vaughn starred in Psycho and they tried to do a shot for shot remake of Psycho. And I get it. It's an homage and it's a it's a trick. It's a challenge. But it's never been my favorite thing. Make it your own. And the Beatles did that in, in, in space. They just did that, you know, better than so many other bands from the beginning. This with the Beatles is also the first album to feature a song written by George Harrison, not just sung by George Harrison. Um, Lennon and McCartney will continue to write songs for George to sing in this and future albums. But, you know, this was a George Harrison. I'll get to the tracking. So this is also the first of their albums to use a four track. And uh, not the last. And they certainly graduated a couple years, few years later into something. But just think of anybody who's old enough to have used a four-track cassette recorder. And I just saw the Elephant Six documentary, by the way, uh, and that is related because the Beatles were an influence on those bands. And those bands recorded largely on a four-track, right? And did an amazing job. And, you know, who would know the difference? And if you do, who cares? Because it sounds awesome. The Beatles were able to achieve that, as were you know, thousands of other people recorded back then, because that was the best any any you know artist could do until, you know, maybe a double four track they might try, and then eight track, etc. And and considering the bouncing they had to do, and then the slight degradation that comes from bouncing, and the greater degradation if you bounce too often, it's utterly amazing how they were able to get their first few albums to sound this way. Uh, and even the first one, which was just the two track. So this track listing, uh, it won't be long. Again, great album opener. All I've got to do, all my loving. That was just a bam, one, two, three, triple thread, all just over two minutes long. They're all some of my favorites. Uh, in the in the band that I'm in, I usually sing the lead to all my loving and the back up to it won't be long don't bother me was that george harrison's penned song that i mentioned um he would get better but hey it's on there and i think there are some fans out there who really enjoy don't bother me little child is a fun song i like it till there was you growing up i never knew the original i wasn't even sure what broadway musical it came from till years later and still to this day prefer their version. I get to sing this uh, in our concerts. So that's partly why I enjoy it. Please, Mr. Postman, another favorite off this album. By the Marvelettes, you know, again, a girl group. And listen to them back to back. You can't take a thing away from the Marvelettes for many reasons. They originated the song. They were great performers. It's a great recording. The song itself is great. Their performance, excellent. It was a defining song of that uh, era of Motown. But listen to it against the Beatles, and they took the song and they made it their own. Now, you'll say, yeah, of course they had to because it was a girl group, but they didn't just do that. They didn't try to capture the sound of the original recording. They captured the feel, the spirit of the original recording and made it their own. Did the same thing, started the second side with Roll Over Beethoven, another song I get to sing, uh, at least recently, a Chuck Berry song. And I thought George did a great job on this, you know. 
Uh, it just shows the strength. There have been times in learning about who did what in the Beatles that I wasn't sure who sang lead for certain songs. And it was often earlier on when, you know, you'd get that, you know, George had a little bit more of a twang to his voice, a little light more of an accent. So that's sort of how I could tell that it was George singing. I mean, of course, you could just read the credits these days, but I'm talking about as a listener. Uh, Hold Me Tight. I, it's one of those songs, again, didn't care anything about when I was a kid and absolutely love now. And I think it's partly because of that movie, Across the Universe. I like that version of the movie, uh, Hold Me Tight. And I think it's what brought me around to the song in general. And we got to perform this recently. It was a recent add to our set. We're always adding, you know, songs. We're up to, I would say, 150 of the Beatles songs now. We're getting there. Huh? Um, and I just love this song. Now, You Really Got a Hold on Me is a Smokey Robinson song. And I don't know this for sure, but I have been a Smokey Robinson fan. He's one of my hard artists. He's on my A to Z list for decades. And um, he is by far, hands down, my favorite Motown artist. He Again, he, he, wrote, he writes his own songs and all of that stuff. He's still out there kicking it, too. Uh, around the same age as the Beatles, as a matter of fact. And I'm not sure, but I think it might be possible that this version of the Smokey Robinson song is what turned me on to Smokey as a performer. Although, you know, Tears of a Clown was my favorite, favorite, favorite song of his. So it could have just been that because I loved that song. But I think it didn't hurt that the Beatles covered one of his songs. Uh, I Want to Be Your Man. I talked about how the Stones had a hit with that. Ringo sang it and did a great job with it. Uh, Devil, That's a favorite of mine. I like the energy of it. Devil, I actually like the Beatles version better on this one. And listen, uh, the Stones did a fine job, but they hadn't really come into their own yet. And even though it's Ringo singing and you may say he was singer number four, he really embodied it and did a great job with it. And their energy was as high as it had, you know, always been early on like that. Devil in Her Heart uh, was a Ricky D song. Cool. And that shows that they also kind of got into that, like, country, more of a country feel, they which they would do later on, act naturally and things like that. And we'll get to that in future episodes, which is also cool. Not a second time a Lennon song I don't. Uh, remember that well and I wouldn't classify it as one of my faves but it was him kind of exploring a theme and a way of writing and then the the ender uh, almost as strong to me is Twist and Shout which by the way let me make a note that the end of Please Please Me is Twist and Shout that was never one of my favorite Beatles songs when I was a kid because I knew it was a cover and I was like, I want to hear the stuff they do. I want to hear their originals. You know, I'm not because I've always been a creator, uh, you know, wrote my first song when I was like six, five or something like that. I'm six. I was six years old. And, you know, I've always listened to music from that standpoint. And even though I love hearing artists cover other people's music, if they especially if they really, uh, you know, do it well, I prefer just hearing their original music. And their newest music, even I'm I'm un- unusual like that. I don't I when I you know go to a concert. Let's say it's U two. Sure, I want to hear 
some of their old stuff, but I also want to hear some of the stuff they're doing right now, partly out of respect for them, but partly because I am genuinely interested. And so Twist and Shout didn't really become a favorite of mine until, you guessed it, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Once it was in that movie, it again became a hit, and it turned everybody on to how great that version was and how much Lennon blew his voice out to get what he got and all of that stuff. And we do it now. I do the backup vocals there. But it's it's something that, again, the great thing about the Beatles, and you'll hear this a lot in these episodes, the six-part series, especially the first five parts, is how the more you live with them, the more your opinion shifts and the more your idea of what your favorites are shifts and all that stuff. And it never really lands For some people it might, and I think those people are more, I would say either A, casual fans of the Beatles, or B, one of those sticklers who has to have everything precise. This guy I work with said, oh, you have the wrong pegs on your your Hofner. It doesn't look like it works. I don't care about that, right? So, and since I'm not that kind of a, a fan, I'm not looking for you know that that level of recreation you know and honestly lost my train of thought there but coming to the final song in this uh a beatles song in this episode money that's what i want it's a barrett strong song and i always loved this cover uh and i mean and here's the thing i did a an episode on covers and originals and which were better and kind of ranked oh i forget how many a few dozen the cover was better, the original is better, et cetera, et cetera. This is one of those cases where I think they're equal. I feel as though both Barrett Strong's and the Beatles versions are equal and good for different reasons, great for different reasons. Note on some non-album singles is, is A, the Beatles had a lot of non-album singles. In fact, you'd be amazed at some of the huge hits they had that were not on any album until compilations later on. And that would include... From this era, From Me to You, Thank You Girl, I think it was a B-side. She Loves You was not on a UK album. It might have been on an American album. The German version, Sie liebt dich. Um, I'll Get You, which is a cool song. You got to listen to I'll Get You if you don't know it. I Want to Hold Your Hand was not on a UK album. And that's usually our opener for every concert we do. The German version... Mein Hunt or whatever it is, I forget the full name, and This Boy, which is just a fun song to perform and a really cool song to listen to. Uh, I hope I've shed a little bit of light on some of the beginnings of the Beatles here from a musician's standpoint. Uh, that that tight harmony in This Boy, which you clearly hear like Everly Brothers and things like that, is just beautiful, you know. Uh, and I think, what was that, Ringo's theme, This Boy? Yeah. So coming to the last part of every almost every episode, the song that I'm going to showcase here is an older song of mine called Do You Wanna? And it's from an album when I was performing under the name Nick called Listen You People. And it is just a straight up pop song. My manager at the time said, can you write a song that starts with the chorus? And that's what this does. You'll hear it in a few seconds. The, almost the entire song is a chorus. I don't know if you can even say there's a verse there. And that's why I picked it because it's very similar to a lot of the early Beatles compositions and music of that time. 
what I call what some people might call the verses. I would call the the bridges. But you you know label it however you want. Uh, as long as you listen to it, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. I hope you enjoy the upcoming song. Please comment. Let me know what I missed, what I got wrong, what you loved about what I have been talking about, what you didn't like. If you see any of the uh, Easter eggs and things in the background here that are Beatles related, if you're watching, if you're listening, sorry, uh, maybe comment and I will tell you what they are. As always, of course, my objectives here our music conversation and connection. Thank you, and I will talk to you next week. Do you want to dance? Do you want to give us half a chance? I can't stand this petty romance. Why can't we just dance? Do you want to play? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 